It ain't no use, people. I'm telling you, it just ain't no use. Uh, this is another episode of Roma ranting out my ass. Yes, I'm not hearing this very long. There it goes. I'm hearing it better. This episode is brought to you by nobody but you and other listeners and uh, my fucking laptop and the wonders of the goddamn internet. That is Carsey Blanton from her new record called So Ferocious. The song is called The Animal I Am. Just about every song on that record is great, is a hit. If I were a DJ, I'd be spinning that shit all night long. But I'm just a podcaster, so there's nothing to spin. I just drag and drop. (laughs) Drag and drop. What a fucking phrase that is. You ever think about that? That's what we do. We drag and we drop. That's life. We drag and drop. All right. I'm going to do something different this time. People have been sending me emails uh, encouraging me to watch this film called Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis, who's a British journalist slash filmmaker. And I've seen some of his other films and they're interesting. And, uh, you know, generally... Uh, in, in, in alignment with my own thinking uh, on a lot of things. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with him. I don't agree with him on everything um, by far. Uh, but, he, you know, he's critical of the modern world. He's critical of this idea that everything's under control and everything's going to be fine and you should just calm the fuck down and let the experts deal with things. So I'm with him there. Um, but you know, a lot of what I do is call people on their bullshit and, uh, you know, lie awake at night, hoping I won't be called on mine, but, uh, no, I don't mean that. I mean, hoping I'm not full of shit to be called on. That's what I mean, but I may be, you know, that's the nature of bullshit. We don't know it. You don't smell it on yourself. You just smell it on other people. Anyway, um, I thought it would be. An interesting film to take a look at. So I did. And, I'll, you know, as I said, all these people have been recommending it. I saw, uh, what's his name? That fucking guy. I can never remember that guy's name. The the tall, skinny British comedian, ex-junkie, really smart. He's been on Rogan's podcast a few times. Oh, fuck, I'm going to pause this and think. Russell Brand. I don't know why I can never remember that dude's name. It's like I'm programmed to forget his name. I see his face. Uh, How can you not see his face? 
Um, don't you wish life were like that, that you could just like be in the middle of a conversation and say, oh, that reminds me of, uh, what was the name of that? And then just stop time. And then you could go Google it or whatever, as I just did. And then you come back and everybody's just frozen in place as you were just then. You didn't notice it. You thought you were, you, you didn't even notice that any time had passed. It's like you, you had that general anesthesia effect and now you're awake again. You didn't know that I just, I just froze you in time and space there for about three minutes while I went and looked up Russell Brand because I, I remembered that he was in get, get Him to the Greek. And so I Googled that and there he was, Russell Brand. Again, the name I forget. And then I came back and then I actually read an email that had come in and then I came back and started this again and you didn't even notice for you time just flowed. So there you go. Anyway, uh, so so I started watching this movie. Um, uh, the movie Hypernormalization, right? Adam Curtis. And I watched about half an hour of it and I thought. Fuck. That's what I thought. There was a long sigh and a fuck. And the reason for the long sigh and the fuck is that, as I said, I I basically feel like I'm on the same side of the war as this guy, but I feel like he's, he's playing some fucking games that I'm not happy with. So let's listen to this. I thought the, I thought we'd make a little episode. I mean, a little example of this, a teaching moment, because it's easy to call bullshit on people you disagree with. It's a much more interesting intellectual exercise to call bullshit on people you agree with, because now you're getting closer to home. And the hardest intellectual episode, exercise is to call bullshit on yourself, as I suggested earlier. So I think it's a very um, useful thing to not get into the lazy habit of just pointing out the cognitive or uh, sort of strategic errors, argumentative errors of uh, people you disagree with, but to turn those guns a little closer to home and, you know, stab knives into your friend's backs, as it were. So uh, I'm just going to play, I think it's, it's not even two or three minutes or something, of the very beginning uh, narration of this film, and then I'll come back and talk about why uh, I found it so annoying. See what you think. strange time. Extraordinary events keep happening that undermine the stability of our world. Suicide bombs, waves of refugees, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, even Brexit. Yet those in control seem unable to deal with them. No one has any vision of a different or a better kind of future. This film will tell the story of how we got to this strange place. It is about how over the past 40 years, politicians, financiers and technological utopians, rather than face up to the real complexities of the world, retreated. Instead, they constructed a simpler version of the world in order to hang on to power. And as this fake world grew, 
all of us went along with it, because the simplicity was reassuring. Even those who thought they were attacking the system, the radicals, the artists, the musicians, and our whole counterculture, actually became part of the trickery, because they too had retreated into the make-believe world, which is why their opposition has no effect, and nothing ever changes. But this retreat into a dream world allowed dark and destructive forces to fester and grow outside, forces that are now returning to pierce the fragile surface of our carefully constructed fake world. Okay, so that's what we're going to be working with here. <clears throat> now, you might say, well, it's not fair to take three minutes or two minutes or whatever that was from a two-hour film and and critique that as if it were a microcosm of the whole thing. But the, but the fact is that if the first two minutes contain significant and repeated... Uh, well, you can call them errors, you can call them tricks, you, you know, you can call them lots of different things. But if you see that same thing repeatedly, especially in the first few minutes, well, that tells you uh, a lot because of, of an entire piece of work, the two parts that are most carefully looked at are the introduction and the conclusion, right? Because <clears throat> those are the things, the introduction is what's going to determine whether you continue to read that book or to watch that film or to listen to that song or, you know, to, to pursue that friendship or whatever it is. And the conclusion is the part you're going to walk away remembering the most strongly uh, if it's done well. And so the artist knows that. And so the artist puts a lot of attention into those two parts of the book or the, the film or whatever. And so there are no mistakes there, in other words. So there, there's nothing there. There's not a second. There's not a frame in that first two minutes of a film that the director hasn't looked at repeatedly and gone over with a fine tooth comb, as they say. So it's not at all unfair to take that as representative of this person's work or their way of thinking or, or you know, arguing a case. So let's look back at this in detail and, and I'll just cut into it um, and, and sort of explain what I'm thinking. strange time. Extraordinary events keep happening that undermine the stability of our world. Suicide bombs, waves of refugees, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, even Brexit. Yet those in control seem unable to deal with them. No one has any vision of a different or a better kind of future. Okay, hold it right there, buddy. So, uh, things keep happening that undermine the stability of our world. Well, okay, I guess that's true, but things are always happening that undermine the stability of our world. There's always a yin and a yang. There's always an order and a resistance to that order. <clears throat> now, I'm old enough to remember when, 
you know, the big worry was the Soviet Union, who had uh, thousands of nuclear um, armed missiles aimed at the United States and, and Western Europe. And we were constantly being told, like, those things can go off at any minute. We'd have about a three-minute warning before thermonuclear devices would detonate over the major cities of the Western world and freedom would be extinguished for all time. Now, I'm not saying that those were overblown concerns. They, they were legitimate concerns. Those, those missiles exist, exist still to this day. We're not talking about them much anymore, but they're still there. They're still pointed at us and they're still ready to go off uh, at a moment's notice whether by accident or intentionally. So uh, there's that. There have been revolutions all over the world forever. You know, as long as there have been dominant forces, there have been revolutions. There have been revolutions against uh, colonial forces. There have been revolutions against neo-colonial forces. There have been revolutions against local governments. That's always happening. So this conceit that there's something unique and special about uh, what's happening now in terms of, you know, the order uh, and the, the sort of destabilizing events. That's complete nonsense. But the main thing that, that got me in that little passage was at the end when he says, No one has any vision of a different or a better kind of future. No one? No one has any vision of a different or better kind of future. No one? Well, damn, I thought there had been so many books and movies and songs and communal living uh, arrangements and uh, tiny houses and um, earthships and God knows. I thought there were thousands of people with ideas about a better and different future. But now I'm told that no one has any vision of a better or different future. Well, that's new. This film will tell the story of how we got to this strange place. It is about how over the past 40 years, politicians, financiers, and technological utopians rather than face up to the real complexities of the world, retreated. Instead, they constructed a simpler version of the world in order to hang on to power. Okay, so uh, financiers, politicians, and technological utopians all failed to acknowledge the complexity of the world, and instead they created a fake world uh, in order to hang on to power. So, again, broad generalizations. Did no politicians recognize the complexity of the world? None of them, really? Uh, No technological utopians understood what was going on? And also, technological utopians, what does that mean? People who work in tech that he disagrees with? I don't know. Um, And he attributes a motivation to them. Uh, because they're trying to hold on to power. So they're all corrupt, they're all ignorant, and they're all um, in retreat from the realities of the world. Now, I don't agree with a lot of what Obama's done. I don't agree with some of Bernie Sanders' uh, ideas. Um, 
but I don't think either one of them are in retreat from the realities of the world. And I don't think either one of them are trying to, you know, cling to power at the expense of rational thinking. I don't know as much about politics in the UK, but I'm sure there are reasonable people who are intelligent and who are uh, confronting the realities of the world uh, in the UK as well and, and in other parts of the world. Now, again, as I say, I generally agree with the political stance of films like this. Uh, so it's a it's kind of a it's a balancing act to be arguing that I think this is kind of silly, but I do I agree with some of the conclusions. I do think that most politicians are corrupt. I do think the political process is corrupting, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm arguing against here is the total absence of nuance on the one hand. Because he says all politicians, all financiers, all technological utopians. Uh, And on the other hand, the attribution of motivation. How the fuck does he know what motivated all these people? That they were all motivated by their unwillingness to confront the realities of the world and their desperate desire to hold on to power. Who are you, Adam Curtis? Do you know all these people? Have you plumbed the depths of their souls? I think not, my good man. And as this fake world grew, all of us went along with it. All of us? All of us, Adam? You too? What about the Sex Pistols? Did they go along with it? Banksy? Did he go along with it? What about all the people who are fighting revolutions? What about FARC in Colombia? Were they going along with it? Huh? The Sandinistas in Nicaragua, were they going along with it? The, the Zapatistas in Mexico, were they going along with it, Adam Curtis? Because you say we all went along with it. Because the simplicity was reassuring. Again, with the, the uh, assumption that you understand the motivation. So you've got the generalization, we all went along with it, with the attribution of motivation that you can't possibly understand because the simplicity was reassuring. Yeah. Even those who thought they were attacking the system, the radicals, the artists, the musicians, and our whole counterculture actually became part of the trickery. Now, this is the kind of smug intellectual superiority that really puts me off. So even those, the artists, the social critics, the blah, 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 everybody who thought they understood what was going on, actually, they were just part of the fucking game, too. And I, Adam Curtis, am the only one who figured it out. Well, I don't think so, Adam Curtis. I mean, look, I, maybe the reason this bothers me is that I'm, as I said at the beginning of this, this is the kind of shit that I could fall into. This is the danger of writing the kind of books that I, I'm in the process of writing, right? These big idea books where it's like, okay, I figured out the nature of human sexuality uh, and like everybody else sort of missed it and here's Sex at Dawn or the book I'm, you know, fuddling around with now, Civilized to Death. You know, I figured out this thing and, you know, okay, other people have seen it and seen it in other ways, but here's, a, you know, strong expression of it and blah, blah, blah. 
the the precipice that I walk along is the precipice of thinking like, oh, I'm so much smarter than everyone else. I figured these, these things out that nobody else could see and blah, blah, blah. And then I just descend into bullshit and then I just fall off and I, you know, sail off into ego driven idiocy. And so maybe that's why I'm hypersensitive to the, the bullshit and hypernormalization here, because I have a personal relationship with it. But the fact is that, man, if you're saying you're the only one who figured this shit out, that even the artists, even the intellectuals, even the social critics whose whose focus is on the nature of reality and the nature of what's, you know, constructed reality. Are you saying like, you know more about this shit than Noam Chomsky? Are you saying you figured shit out that Noam Chomsky never saw? Come on, man. Have some fucking humility. Because they too had retreated into the make-believe world, which is why their opposition has no effect. Their opposition has no effect. <clears throat> really? Their opposition has no effect. Well, it seems to me that opposition has a lot of effect. It seems to me that offshore drilling has, there are moratoriums on offshore drilling, that there's pressure on, on governments to change policies that people consider to be unjust, like apartheid, for example. Uh, uh, female genital mutilation. There have been campaigns against that. There have been campaigns against uh, Monsanto, campaigns against fracking. Uh, recently, my friend uh, Josh Fox and, and Dia Schlossberg and other friends were in uh, North Dakota protesting the pipeline, the Standing Rock pipeline. They got that uh, stopped, at least temporarily, until the next administration comes in. There are effects. And to simply state something as absurd as that these that the opposition to uh, government policies or to the sort of onslaught of, um, you know, the, the corporate government fascist complex has absolutely no effect without evidence. I mean, you have to you have to deal with all the evidence against your argument. And, but he's not making an argument. He's simply making statements. And it's insulting to people who spend their lives and risk their lives and their, their well-being out there on the front lines, protesting, getting beaten up by cops with fucking guns and dogs and getting sprayed by water hoses, high-pressure fire hoses and freezing temperatures in order to stand up for clean water. Uh, and you just say it has no effect whatsoever? Nah, no. And nothing ever changes. But this retreat into a dream world allowed dark and destructive forces to fester and grow outside. And nothing ever changes. What? Things are changing all the time. What do you mean nothing ever changes? Even if your argument is that things are getting worse, which I think is the argument here, well, things are changing. They're getting worse. That's a change, right? So this is just sloppy thinking. This is this is the the sorts of uh, the sort of writing um, that I feel is insulting to the reader. It has no respect for the listener because any listener who's paying attention is going to say, like, what What are you talking about, man? It has no effect. Everybody does this. Nobody understands anything. Nothing ever changes. There are all these absolutes um, that on the face of it, uh, on the shallowest level, are completely ridiculous. 
forces that are now returning to pierce the fragile surface of our carefully constructed fake world. So that's why I'm not going to watch the rest of hypernormalization. <laughs> Fucking gets me, gets my blood pressure up, you know? When it's when it's the dumbasses on the other side who are pumping out bullshit, you know, when I watch football with my dad and I see all these fucking commercials and one after another just selling crap that is either bad for you or at the worst is not good for you being sold, you know, with all these lies and these smiling, lying fucking people. At least I know that that's the other side. I know that they're the bad guys. I know that they're the ones who are they, you know, they being the companies, not the actors who are just trying to get by by, you know, being in a commercial or whatever. I'm not blaming any individuals necessarily, but I understand that that is the, you know, those are the voices of, um, you know, corporate dumbassery. But it really annoys me when someone on the side that's critical of corporate dumbassery is employing these sorts of sloppy fucking bullshit techniques. Because it, I mean, it almost makes me wonder if it's like um, a black flag operation, you know? If Adam Curtis is actually funded by the fucking Koch brothers, you know, or some other right-wing think tank in order to make the left-wing or the, the critical intelligentsia look like idiots. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's the net result of this sort of thing, you know? Somebody, somebody from that part of the world, that, that part of the intellectual or political spectrum who says, okay, look, you know, let's see what's going on. Here's this movie. Everyone's, you know, Russell Brand's talking about it. Other people are talking about it. You know, let's check this out. I, I heard a, a whole thing on, on the local NPR station the other day talking about this movie. They were doing a fun drive and they were like giving away a free link to the movie or something, even though the movie's free online. So I don't really understand that. But Anyway, they were talking about it as if it were, you know, an example of the sort of you know, hard-hitting, intellectually solid, well-researched, uh, well-grounded critique of the modern world that uh, people should be paying attention to. And NPR is pretty mainstream. So, you know, it could be somebody heard that and they're like, okay, let me give this a shot. They, they find it on, you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's, uh, it's out there, hyper-normalization. And uh, they watch the first two minutes of it and, you know, they would probably have the same response I did, which is, what the fuck is this? I can't take this seriously. This is a joke. So anyway, that's today's lesson in critical thinking from Dr. Ryan. Now let's turn to some of your emails. Let's see what we got here. Got some good ones. All right, let's see. Let's start with a happy one. I wrote to you a bit over a year ago, excited and nervous for what the road had in store for me. This is from Robert. I began my journey on July 15th of last year, and I believe I can honestly say 
that the year following that were the 365 consecutive best days of my life. Well, yes. I hiked 500 miles and would hike 500 more through the Colorado mountains, hitchhiked through the U.S., Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, Ecuador, Peru, and Chile. I've taken ayahuasca in the jungles of Bolivia. I volunteered in Pedernales, the town in Ecuador that was completely destroyed by an earthquake. I learned to surf, cook, speak a new language, and more things than I could possibly list here. I've met so many amazing people and seen so many amazing places that I often wonder whether or not I'm dead. Although whether I am, I am or not doesn't really matter. Ooh, that's, that's a liberating insight. I even convinced my dentist to quit his job and quit the road too. Hit the road too. You <laughs> convinced your dentist to quit? Well, that's probably a good job to quit. Uh, I'm now sitting on the island of Rapa Nui, also known as Eastern, Easter Island, chilling with a Maui, and I'm getting ready to go snowboarding for the winter in Chile and Argentina. I now look forward to what each new day brings, as each day is a completely new adventure full of wonder and excitement. Uh, I'm sure you know the impact you've had on many people's lives, da, 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 but I felt the great need to say thank you for completely destroying my life and sending me on the path to this incredibly wonderful existence. I've reached levels of happiness I didn't even know were possible in the whole of the universe. So thank you again. Eternally grateful. P.S. The dentist says thanks, too. <laughs> All right. That's a good one. No request for for any advice or whatever. But, uh, hey, I'm glad Bob hit the road and had a good time out there. No guarantees. He could have had a terrible time. And then he'd you know, be writing to me, cursing me. But so I, I take neither credit nor blame when these things happen. But, you know, when, when I when I meet younger people, uh, whether it's in person or, you know, in these sorts of exchanges that we have through this weird medium that we're on right now, um, I don't feel any responsibility to give you good advice or bad. Well, certainly not bad advice, but uh, I, I, my policy is I don't, I don't get caught up in what happens to people, um, but that I will be as clear a mirror as possible. So, you know, I've got some friends who are quite a bit younger than me and, uh, you know, there's a temptation to sort of try to guide people toward the right, you know, what I consider to be the right direction, make the right move, whatever. Um, but the problem with that is if you guide someone in a certain direction, then you sort of, uh, have some responsibility for what comes about because of that, you know? And the fact is that I'm in no better position to predict the future than anyone else is. So what I end up doing as best I can is just to be as clear uh, a mirror as I can be. And so just to sort of be when I'm when they do something that pisses me off, let them know that they piss me off and why they piss me off and explain it and you know, when there's something that I think is really cool, I tell them why I think it's really cool and let them, let them figure out what to do with it all, you know? So if you're a, a young in, in your twenties or whatever, thirties or maybe, you know, sixties, whatever, whatever, however old you are, if you feel young and you feel like 
you're looking for some sort of insight or guidance or something um you know this is all this is all a guy who doesn't feel qualified to be giving you advice but um i'm being i'm as honest as i can be with you so you know i hope that's worth something okay let's see i'm 27 uh i'm running to seek advice i'm 27 my brother's 24 this is from a a guy uh both white raised in middle class family da 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 perfect easy life Five years ago, while attending college, my brother called my parents, basically saying, something's not right, I got to get out of here. My parents, being the most kind and generous people I've ever known, didn't tell him to tough it out. They drove three hours and brought him home. Great. My parents, not really knowing what was going on, just thought he needed to regroup and uh, make a different life move. Then they heard laughing fits coming from his bedroom, talking to himself or no one in particular, basically talking nonsense. They brought him to the doctor. He had a mental evaluation and they determined that he was having symptoms of schizophrenia and needed to be put on antipsychotics and antidepressants. I returned home from traveling abroad around this time and witnessed the psychic episodes. It was a real deal. It was the real deal and it was scary. We'd be driving the car somewhere. Dad, mom, my brother and myself, everything would be quiet. And he'd turn to me and say, what, am I gay? Things like this out of nowhere. The look I saw in his eyes reminded me of myself tripping on LSD with friends, anxious, not really sure what was going on. Another piece of information is that my brother was smoking marijuana during the time leading up to this mental break. Now it's five years later, and he's in pretty good shape. He's scaled back on the medications. He's been taking a light course load at the community college for three years, working towards an associate's degree. He jogs in the neighborhood, grows things in the garden. I know he's doing much better than so many people who have had uh, similar mental struggles. And here's my point. I see him being so close to going out into the world and thriving, leaving the cage, as you might say. But he's still very much closed off from the world. He doesn't have any friends. He's very quiet. He sleeps half the day, plays a lot of online video games. Um, he communicates with other players in the games. And when I visit home, I hear him being very relaxed and vocal into the microphone, enjoying himself, laughing normally. So here's my question. What do you think of psychedelic drugs being used to treat symptoms of schizophrenia, possibly even break someone out of a closed off mental state, LSD, psilocybin, ibogaine, I poked around the internet and found different accounts of different drugs. Western medicine and my parents have done a great job of numbing the pain, but beyond that, I haven't seen any true healing. Any thoughts you can share on this topic would be a blessing. Okay, well, look, uh, I really don't think psychedelic drugs are a good idea for someone who is in a fragile um, mental, psychological state. So... I would not recommend that. Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't comment on uh, what psychotropic medications he's been taking. But if he's scaling them back and he's laughing and having sort of normal interactions with people online, um, then it sounds to me like the doctors probably have him on a pretty good course. 
And, uh, you know, as much as he can continue to scale back gradually, mind you, because some of these drugs, if you drop them cold turkey, um, can be very dangerous, um, even fatal, I believe. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't know what he's taking. So that's that's not a specific comment on what what he's up up into. But um, it sounds to me like he's doing much better and and that he's got some social anxiety possibly related to the freak out. You know, uh, that's a pretty scary thing to go through. And, uh, you know, people change the way they act around you people he's living in his hometown i'm sure words gotten around that hey have you heard about him he came back from college and you know he's been you know kind of acting a little weird and you know he's in a mental hospital and blah 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 so he goes out in the street people look at him funny they interact with him funny so you get into a bit of a spiral there um and i imagine it's hard to break out of that and he also sounds like maybe he's depressed, um, but the fact that he's out jogging and gardening and things like that are good signs that he's not just sitting in his room all the time. So uh, I would encourage him to or encourage you to sort of um, be supportive around the idea of him getting out more, maybe coming and visiting you wherever you are, hanging out with your friends, getting away from the home environment to the extent that he's comfortable doing that. And, uh, you know, getting back on his feet. If he's, you know, these, these sorts of experiences in the West, we see them as being, uh, an indication of sort of a terminal condition, but, but they're not necessarily. And to a large extent, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy when, you know, you look at something like that and you say, Oh, well that, that person's schizophrenic. So that's it for the rest of their lives. They're going to be schizophrenic. Well, in other cultures, what we're calling this, you know, this psychic, uh, psychological break or uh, a schizophrenic episode, these are seen as transitory episodes there. They could be seen as a call to shamanize they could be seen as you know a temporary sort of tear in the veil between two different uh, realities that he sort of got confused in the middle there somewhere and slipping back and forth you know there are lots of ways of framing these things that don't leave someone feeling like they're suffering from a terminal mental illness which it isn't you know there are lots of people i had a guest on on the podcast who uh tanya lerman i think her name was who demonstrated in her research that people in different cultures who hear voices hear the voices saying different kinds of things you know in the west they the voices tend to say aggressive weird dangerous things but in other cultures they say things like yeah hey, why don't you know it's a good day to vacuum the house you know or you know he's maybe it's time to weed the garden it's like they're not necessarily negative presences and the fact is we all hear voices it's just that some of us roll with it You know, I mean, who hasn't had an auditory hallucination? They're extremely common. I mean, who among us hasn't been falling asleep and heard a voice, heard someone say something and like, what? And what you open your eyes and there's no one there, but you definitely heard it, you know, and maybe the only difference is that if you're confident in your mental uh, stability, 
something like that happens and you go, oh, that was weird. And you go back to sleep and that's the end of it. And if you're not comfortable with your mental stability, you think, oh, my God, I'm losing my fucking mind, you know? I mean, it happens with me all the time. It happened while I was recording this podcast. I couldn't remember Russell Brand's name, right? And it's like, oh, am I like, is that early Alzheimer's? Is that, you know, is there, are there like weird crusts growing in my brain cells? Or is that just forgetting shit, you know, which I've done my whole life. But when you're 22, you don't start, you don't even think like, oh, that could be a sign of, you're just like, yeah, whatever. I couldn't remember. It doesn't matter. So many things in life become problems because of the way we experience them, because of the way we choose to think about them. I mean, erectile dysfunction is a, is a great example of that, right? Like you can't get it up one time. So how are you going to deal with it? You're going to say like, yeah, whatever, you know, go down on her. I mean, who cares? You know, she, she won't even necessarily notice or care. She might be happier. Or are you going to be like, oh my God, what's going on? Oh, I've never been like this before. Oh my God. Oh, this is, the more you freak out about it, the more of a problem it becomes. The best way to deal with many problems is to just fucking not even acknowledge them as being a problem in the first place. So I guess my advice in this particular situation is to help your brother minimize to the extent possible uh, the impact that this little situation is going to have on on the totality of his life that he he sees it as uh yeah there were a couple of years there where i sort of lost the thread uh you know i lost the lost the path i wandered off a bit uh but now i'm back and i'm cool and uh it happens to a lot of people and it's no big deal and you know maybe it's an indication of of uh some some complexity and subtlety and and there's something about him that's that's special and uh you know he's gonna have some compassion for other people who are going through that sort of thing and maybe it's an indication that he's got some healing potential which is how these things are often viewed in shamanic cultures um in any case to minimize it as a negative thing to see himself as being capable and cool and and like balanced and to the extent that he's able to feel that way, he'll be that way. And if he needs to stay on the meds, then, you know, I guess he has to stay on the meds. But whatever, whatever works for him uh, to, like, not feel sick is what's important. And um, but definitely I would not recommend uh, hallucinogens or anything like that Um for someone who's feeling fragile. That's not the way to go. No. Okay. Uh, let's see. What do we got here? Your time is valuable, and I won't be hurt if you overlook this generic email. Well, I'm not going to overlook it. So there you go. Although it did come in August, so it seems like I've overlooked it. Uh, okay. So he believes in, in polyamory. He never thought he'd be in a monogamous relationship. But my current girlfriend wouldn't have it any other way. And I love her deeply, so I honor that. But then there's another girl who I was crushing on before I met my girlfriend, who I still talk to in snippets, who my gut tells me is the one I need the most. Except my gut tells me the one I'm with is the one who needs me the most. 
I'm torn between the one I think best matches me and the one who most needs me. The one who best matches me smokes pot and reads literature. The one who most needs me is socially awkward, barely has any friends, her family's distant, and she might be alone her whole life if I don't stay with her. The easy answer is go with the one you feel most connection with. Well, guess what? I feel equally connected to both. I can't imagine living a life exclusively for myself. I want to live for others. The second girl is perfect for that. What a blessing to be with, to be the one taking care of another in need. Is there any higher calling? At the same time, I want to indulge in selfish pleasures like smoking pot and getting drunk and talking about literature. The first girl is perfect for that. Not to be selfish, I want to know where I would be most valuable. I don't know because they both seem amazing. Well, first thing I would recommend is that you read a book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being because he really gets into that, this this conundrum. There's a woman that he's very, the main character's name is Tomas, And there's Sabina, who's the woman he connects with, has a great sexual connection with. They have an open relationship. They're very good friends. They have sex. They see each other when they see each other. And she's got other guys. He's got other women. And she's cool with that. And he's cool with it. But they've got their special, special thing. Uh, And then another woman comes into his life named Teresa. And Teresa is like, The second woman described in this email, she's vulnerable and needy and uh, she shows up at his door with her suitcase and has nowhere to stay and just sort of makes herself um, dependent on him. And he at first feels like, what's going on here? I'm being crowded you know this who is this woman and uh but very quickly she sort of takes over his life and he lets it happen because he gets off on this feeling of being needed also he's a doctor uh, in the in the book and the film uh so he's you know he there's something about being needed there's something about you know having uh a positive effect on people's lives that also plays out in his uh, profession. I think he's a brain surgeon. Uh, but here's the thing, man. It, it's noble and beautiful to help people. There's no question about that. But what you're, when you talk about the first woman, you're talking about her, the things that turn you on or, or that resonate with you are qualities of her that she likes literature she likes to get high she likes you know things that you like when you talk about the second woman the things you like about that relationship are things you're talking about yourself you're not talking about her you're talking about the fact that when you're with her you feel like a savior when you're with her you feel like you're doing something noble like you're helping someone you're being a good guy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, those are all admirable qualities, but the problem is that when you have a relationship that's based upon you helping someone else, it's this one-way flow of value, 
And the only value that's coming back to you is this feeling of what superiority, uh, this Jesus savior complex that you got going on. That's not a good basis for a relationship. Um, either because, you know, it's going to get to a point where you're going to be disappointed that she isn't becoming the person that you're supposedly creating, right? You're investing all this energy and time into helping her overcome whatever her social awkwardness and her, you know, difficult family situation, whatever. So then you start to feel like you've got some right to, to her being a certain kind of person because you've put all this energy and you've invested in this person or she's going to reach a point where she's going to say, what the fuck, man? You know, this guy is just like, you know, overbearing. And it, in other words, you're, you're the power imbalance in this relationship is not going to, is not going to be good for either one of you. And, and also you're looking at your, a partnership. You're looking at a relationship that's at the heart of your life. That's a place you want to feel balance. That's a place where you want to feel that you're learning as much with her as she's learning with you, where she's got your back, you've got her back, where, you know, when you're, when you're low, she'll pick up the slack. And when she's low, you'll pick up the slack. But it sounds to me like there's no balance there, that this is, this is you feeling, having a need to be needed. And that's not love. That's because that's not about her. Like I said, that's about you. So I would encourage you to think very um, carefully and very honestly about your own motivations here and your own need to be needed and really work on that shit before you rope anyone else into your your life, whether it's a partner or kids or whatever. Really think that stuff through and make sure that you're coming from a healthy place there and that and that the relationships that you're having with other people are really motivated by a clear sort of... Um, that you're clear with yourself about what's motivating you. And because this savior complex, that's not good for anybody. Here's a song that's really freaky and weird. It's called My Lovely Elizabeth, and it's by S.E. Rogi, who's from Africa. I don't remember what country, maybe Congo, I think. Anyway, it's a very strange little love song. Worried at heart, I say I'm deeply worried at heart. Cause the girl I love so well, my friend has learned from me. Now I scarcely know what to do. Better hang my head and cry for my lovely Isabel. Many guys that 
Literally crazy after me Bet I'm not interested in any Save my lovely Elizabeth My sweet Elizabeth Pay like by me, my mother more coming at all song is My Lovely Elizabeth. I am deeply worried at heart. Okay, uh, I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. I got four more, but I'm just going to like excerpt them here. Uh, So here's a guy, uh, Condor. Well, I'm not going to read that because I think that's his name. That's his nickname. Something Condor blank lightning strikes city with fear once again. That's the subject line. Uh, anyway, this guy, blah, 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 traveling. He he dropped out of school in Texas. He went traveling. He worked for three months, uh, played in a band, saved a heap of money, went to Peru, worked on a mushroom farm. They went to Japan to tour this band, then Sevilla, Sevilla, and later in the year. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, the catch, of course was that I was with a girl when I left and we were very in love. And even if it was just a narcotic state induced by sex proliferation and we attempted to stay together as phantom bodies through the internet and phone calls, of course, this didn't work as she found someone she had feelings for back in the world while I was in Peru. That'll happen. Um... Yeah, okay. It was it was during this time that I realized my pain surrounding the situation was created by the child my imagined ideas of ownership over this girl had with the imagined ideas of who I want her to be versus who she actually is. So my question is, how do you think one can go about recognizing when they're projecting imagination upon someone 
as opposed to seeing someone for whom they really are? That's the question. That is a good question. Uh, Furthermore, how do I know I'm not doing this with myself every time I see myself in the mirror? I'm sure you ran into this this issue when you first started traveling. You would go out into the depths of the unknown and return having experienced great internal friction and alchemical change that sparked within you the crystallization of character and return to the world, having everyone around you still imagine the old Chris that left, not believing essentially that the Chris they knew died in a blazing internal fire. (laughs) Yeah. They don't believe it. Even now they don't believe it that I was out in the depths of the unknown. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think the key is as far as like, you know, other people not believing that you're different. Like, who gives a shit? That's what you have to. That's that's it. Forget it. Who cares what other people think about you? It's hard enough to figure out what we think about ourselves, right? As you say, you know, how do I know I'm not projecting weird shit onto myself when I look at myself in the mirror? So worrying about what other people are projecting onto you? Fuck, give it up, man. Give it up. Let go of that stuff. Uh, I think that's, that's an essential step in growth is learning not to care. And in fact, I would encourage if I were like running a school which may, who knows, maybe I'll do this someday. If I were running some sort of an educational program, one of the things I would do is I would have the students dress in a way or do, you know, whatever, do something that was going to make people look at them weird. And then like go wander around, you know, the target store with half your head shaved or, you know, with your fly down and your red underwear showing through or, you know, with your shirt on backwards or, you know, whatever, whatever's going to make you feel really awkward and strange and spend an hour wandering around Target being stared at and snickered at and laughed at and people pointing at you and muttering behind your back and all that experience that and then uh, realize it doesn't fucking matter. You know, you go out, you get in your car, you drive home, you're the same guy. Nothing happened. Or the same woman. Nothing happened. Doesn't matter. People laughed at you. Who cares? See, we have this, we have this innate terror of social uh, faux pas or of, of, uh, you know, the way we're judged. Um, But that's because we evolved in these hunter-gatherer groups where everyone knew us and was going to know us for life. And there was nowhere to go. There's no way to get away from that group. And so if people in that group change their opinion, if people in that group have a negative opinion of you, that really, really affects your life. So if they think you're dumb or you're weird or you're, you know, whatever you're, you know, whatever it is, the negative thing that they think about you uh, had a concrete lasting, tangible effect on your life. Well, bad news, folks. These days, it doesn't fucking matter. Now, that's good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it. Shame is 
uh, still functions on most of us, but on some people it doesn't function at all. And I, I'm sorry to tell you that a lot of those people have risen to the top of society. Those are the people you see starring in your movies. Those are the people you see, you know, standing on stage, you know, telling jokes. Those are the people you see running the world. Those are people for whom shame is either a non-issue or they've just learned to ignore it uh, for better or worse. And to some extent, that's a positive, important skill to have. So, you know, whatever you worrying about whether people recognize that you're different than you were when you left on your trip, that's ego. That's ego. Let that shit go. In fact, the best way for people to recognize that you're different is to notice that you're so much more relaxed now. And you're the kind of guy who doesn't give a shit about that anymore. That would be the best possible change for people to notice, right? But let them notice it. Don't be running around proclaiming your newfound fucking wisdom, you know? I know I know a guy who on his personal webpage, on his bio, he claims to be enlightened. You know, it says like, whatever his name is, Joe, found enlightenment in, you know, in 2007 or some shit like that. It's like, are you fucking kidding me, man? First of all, I don't know if anyone is truly enlightened, but if they are, they're not running around telling people they're enlightened, you know? The first rule of Fight Club is not talk about Fight Club. Well, same thing with enlightenment. First rule of being enlightened is you don't tell people you're enlightened. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't worry about... um, what people think about you. Now, the more complex question is, how do you know when you are in love or, or when, you're, when you're not even love, but when you're responding to the person in front of you as opposed to a reflection of the stuff that you're projecting onto that person? And that is a really complicated question that I can't tell you I have the answer to. I know that my own emotions and my own feelings about people are largely motivated by where I am in my life. There's no way around that. And, you know, part of that is, of course, illusory, right? Part of that is um, certainly uh, not about that person, but another part of it is perspective. So in other words, yes, there's bullshit that we project onto other people that like flashes back at us and we think we're seeing them, but we're really just seeing our own bullshit. That's definitely there. But the other thing is what you see in someone also depends on the angle from which you're viewing them. Right. Um, you know, just like, you know, there's a mountain in, in Nepal called Machu Puchari that's called fish in, in the local language. It means fishtail mountain. And I could never understand that because I'm looking at it and it's like, I don't see any fucking fishtail there. It's just this beautiful triangular rock mountain. And then someone explained to me, yeah, but if you walk like 300 miles to the south and you look at it from there, it looks like a fishtail because, you know, then you see these rock formations that are obscured from this angle. And it's like, oh, okay. So it's called Machu Puchari because the people way down there named it, you know? Uh, and it's, I think life is like that. If, if you meet someone and, you know, you see parts of them, it may actually be them. Uh, but it's a part of them that you're able to see because of the perspective that you have at this moment in your life. So it's not 
necessarily that you're projecting bullshit onto them and what you're responding to has nothing to do with them. It could just be that that's a part of them. Maybe you're in a, in a moment in your life where you're particularly forgiving and relaxed and patient. And, and so you sort of see through a thicket of nonsense that this person puts up that most people would sort of get stuck in that nonsense, but you're able to see through it to this beautiful, tender, loving person inside there that really is there. They really are there, but you're, it's almost like you're, you know, when you adjust binoculars, you don't see the stuff in near you. You only see the stuff in the depth of field where your focus is. And so there's that as well. Like you're seeing into people at different depths, depending on the quality of your vision at any given time in your life. So it, it's all really complicated and interesting. And, and I would, I would say that that's the beauty of knowing someone else is, is constantly trying to disentangle what is them, what is me, what is a part of them that I'm able to see that maybe other people aren't able to see? What's a part of them? What's this facet of them that I wouldn't have seen 20 years ago if I'd met this person, you know, the way I was then when I was maybe less patient or less nuanced or whatever. I mean, I th- returning to an earlier th- theme, I think that one of the things that's nice about getting older is that you accumulate all your earlier selves, right? You're not you know, you in this email, you're like, I'm not the Chris I was before. Now I'm this other Chris. Well, it's not really like that in my experience. It's more like I am the Chris I was. And now this other one as well, it's layered, it's sedimentary rock. It's, it's, it's layers of, of perspective that build over time. You don't, you don't throw away the old one and replace it with the new one. You just add the new one to the old ones. And so you, you sort of look at situations or people and yeah, you see them the way you would have seen them 20 years ago, but you also see them the way you see them now. And, and there are all those nuances in between. That's what's interesting. So I don't think there's an answer to the question, how do I know what's projection and what's really that person other than, you know, if you spend time with them and you've known them over time and you've changed over time and you see that there's this consistency in them, then then that's them, you know, Uh, because you've changed and your perspectives changed, but your vision of them has remained the same. But yeah, you need time for that. Okay, let's move on to the other. I said I was going to be quick with these. Jesus, that, that wasn't very quick, was it? Uh, okay, this is a tough one. Here's my deal. I'm 29. Uh, had an interesting life. Lots of good stories. Lots of good friends. About five years ago, I fell into a career which has done well for me. I make good money. Don't have to work too hard. Financially, it's been really good. The problem is I don't get to do whatever I want anymore, and I'm stuck in this job because it's a field that's hard to get back into if you're out of it for a while. I'm in the classic story of nine to five, go home, drink a few beers, watch TV, repeat, and it's really getting me down. Been with my girlfriend for six years. She's 27. She's in a similar situation. She's made good money the last few years, saved it, and she's feeling the same sort of uh, impatience I am. 
We're at the point now where we can afford to take some time off, look into what to do in the future. The loose plan is to travel for a while, figure out where in the world we want to be, then buy or start a business or something like that. Who knows? Plans always change. It'll work out. We have a great relationship, common goals, and enough money in the bank to do what we want. If we go forward with it, we're planning to quit our jobs in the fall and drive south in our van. Uh, This email came in uh, just in December. So I guess if they're in North America, they're talking about next fall. Um, the, and the But they could be in Australia, but I don't know, whatever. Um, so they're looking at a, a plan here in the next nine months, I guess. The issue is we both come from families that aren't very well off. My mother passed a while ago, but my father and brother work shitty jobs just to get by. My dad doesn't have much retirement. Um her, repar- her parents aren't working. They don't have much money. They have health issues. And, uh, yeah, and we help out with their rent. So as I see it, our options are keep doing this 9-to-5 thing, give money to family to help them out, then do what we want in the future sometime. The big issue is will sometime ever happen? Will we regret not going for the rest of our lives? Option number two is quit our jobs here in the fall and travel. The big issue is will our parents suffer because of it? Will they think we're rich assholes only thinking about ourselves? Thanks for reading. Let me know what you think. Well, yeah, this probably falls into that category of emails where, you know, if you're asking me, you already know what I'm going to say. Um, So I'll just go ahead and say it. You should do what you want to do. Um, You might be able to temper it a little bit. I don't know how much money you have saved up. I don't know what your relationship with your father and your brother's like or with your girlfriend's parents. I don't know how much they've helped you in the past. I don't know what you feel you owe them, if anything. Um, But I'll tell you one thing you don't owe them which is your life. And that's what you're talking about here. Your girlfriend's 27. I think you're 29. I don't, you don't mention if you guys want to have kids, if you're thinking about that, but if that's something that's going to happen, it could very easily happen in the next five years. Right. And if you spend those years hanging out, working in these jobs that you're not enjoying, going home, drinking beer, watching TV, those years go by pretty damn fast, man. And then you have a kid and then another kid and then you can't quit your job because now you need that money for those kids and you're fucking looped in. You're strapped in and you're not getting out. So uh, I don't think that sounds like a good idea. If you guys want to roll and now's the time to roll and you've saved your money and you've worked your ass off and, you know, and working your ass off doesn't necessarily mean the job has to be hard. The job can just be fucking boring and you've traded some years for that and you've obviously done well enough to to bank some money and you've had the discipline to bank some money as well. I'm not blaming anybody for for not having banked some money because that was me most of my life. But the fact is, you know, your parents and her parents, they made their decisions and, um, you know, they've been dealing with their own good luck and bad luck and so on. And 
you know, if you feel a sense of responsibility, um, you know, maybe you can, uh, you mentioned something about them renting half your house, you know, maybe you can rent out the other half and, um, you know, throw them some, some cash for taking care of the property or, you know, reduce their rent or whatever. I mean, there are ways where you can set up a win-win, uh, where you don't feel that you're being taken advantage of, then that's great. Uh, where, where you can be, there are ways to be generous that don't cost you as much value as the value you're delivering to other people. And I think that's the thing to look for always. You know, it's like, I love giving things to people when I know they need it and I don't need it as much or at all. Then that's the perfect gift giving situation, right? You're, you're delivering a higher value to the person than you're paying for it. Uh, in your own life. And now if you're rich, then a lot of things are that way, right? A hundred bucks means a lot less to you than it does to a lot of people who would be receiving it. So that's, that's a nice imbalance of value that you can do, but it's also, it also works in lots of other ways. So if there are ways that you can help them out that aren't going to like cause you problems or stop you from living your life, then that's cool. But don't change your plans, because your brother has a shitty job or because your girlfriend's parents, you know, don't have a bunch of money saved up for retirement. That's no reason to change your life. And frankly, if they love you and feel as protective and generous towards you as it sounds that you guys feel toward them, they wouldn't want you to do that. They'd want you to go out and have fun. They'd want you to enjoy your late 20s, early 30s, you know, see the world and, uh, make these these big decisions that you guys are going to be making about the rest of your lives they'd want you to do that from a position of knowledge and freedom and experience they wouldn't want you to hang out uh you know and just sort of pay their rent uh and if they do then yeah they're you know there's another reason not to feel obligated to them so no my advice is quit your goddamn job and go have fun you guys Sounds like you have a good relationship. You got, you know, you got some money. You did some, you, you prepared. Enjoy it. You deserve it. Get the fuck out of Dodge. Okay, here's one. This is from a guy in his early to middle 20s. Uh, brought down by growing into adulthood, pursuing a completely fabricated standard of living. Here it is, the short version. After working my cock off for years, striving for all the material goods that's supposed to make a man feel happy and secure, I stood there, ready to take out a 20,000 euro mortgage for an apartment. Some anti-materialist rant I'd heard on a podcast came to mind. Uh-oh. I had been listening to your podcast for a while, agreed with most of your opinions, but until that moment, I never really incorporated any of it into my own life. Oh, God. So here's a guy about to take out a mortgage on an apartment, and he starts hearing my voice in his head. I'm not sure that's, well, let's see how it goes. So I came to the conclusion that I was going to pass on the well-respected achievement of buying an apartment and do something different instead. I accepted the fact that I'd been depressed for years. During these years, I convinced myself that contemplating suicide was perfectly sane. I was doing what everyone else was doing, so why should I be the only one suffering? It must be the norm, I used to tell myself. I decided that traveling the world and reading books would be my new thing. Now it's been eight months since I left my home country. 
uh, Scandinavian country. As of right now, I'm sitting in Rio de Janeiro for the last four months. I've been traveling across South America, Peru, Bolivia, and Brazil. Before that, I was in southern Portugal and Spain. I've been volunteering through a lot of workaway inf- uh, through workaway.info program. So check that out, workaway.info, uh, which was pretty cool. Though I learned a lot more about myself and my own boundaries than what I initially hoped to achieve, which was masonry, carpentry, and other handy skills. Uh, which implies that there's there are a lot of shitty hosts fishing for a free workforce without a, offering anything but a bed and a little food. I'm not complaining, though. It's been an amazing experience, and I've learned more about myself since January than the four years before that put together. Now I have a newfound drive to pursue my own goals. I have my own thirst for knowledge, what was, which was completely lost once I had settled into my well-paid full-time job. So I just wanted to reach out and give you a big thanks for being a highly influential factor in the greatest, most life-changing experience that's ever happened to me. Oh, good. That's beautiful. Thank you, man. I'm glad that worked out. So... There you go. People who are thinking about whether or not to take a leap or stay and take care of your parents, you know, who aren't even really sick. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, poor. Well, lots of people are poor, but get the fuck out there. Live your life. Okay. Last one. Hi, Chris. Uh, a guy, Lee from Ireland here. Thanks for the podcast. When you were 20. So he has three questions. When you were 20, did you know what you wanted to do? I'm 20 myself, and the main thing I worry about is what am I going to do? I don't want to be another spoke in the wheel of the system, but I want to do something. When I was 20, no, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, Listen to the Toma episode, I think, like college and then Alaska, somewhere in there, because that's when I was about 20. No, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was in college. Uh... I thought I was going to be a college professor. I was going to go to Oxford. I was going to get a PhD in literature. I was going to, you know, teach books and all that. And then I went to Alaska. I traveled a little bit. I had these incredible experiences, had this epiphany that I was turning into a smug, arrogant asshole and decided that I would spend my 20s traveling and try to figure it out because I realized that, no, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And 20 years of age was way too fucking young for me to make any lasting decision. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew better than to make any decisions in that state uh, other than to keep my options open. Question number two, with the way society is so fucked up, does it ever affect your mood or do you find it hard to cheer up the way it is? Yes, it affects my mood. It does. Uh, Yeah, it's tragic. It it makes me incredibly sad. Uh, Not the not the the fact that there's so much suffering in the world, but that so much of it is unnecessary. That's what makes me sad. That so much of the suffering is needless and it's all just based upon ignorance and, and that it doesn't even really benefit anyone. That's, that's the thing that kills me. If the winners, the so-called winners were just rolling around in their, 
luxury yachts rubbing their bellies and laughing in orgasmic happiness, then I'd say, well, you know, at least at least the winners won. And, you know, all that suffering leads to this, you know, it's just this incredible concentration of happiness at the top of the pyramid. But I've been to the top of the pyramid and there's no fucking concentration of happiness up there. There isn't. So that's what bums me out. It's not that some people steal from other people. It's that they steal and then they get home and then they're just as fucking miserable as everyone else. So what the fuck is the point? That's what bums me out. It's not the natural suffering. It's not the sickness and the, you know, the, the, the bad luck and the, yeah, those things happen and it's a bummer, but yeah, you know, that's part of the package, right? It's not the sadness of getting older. You know, that's a bummer too, but it's part of the package. No, it's the, it's the needless suffering that really gets me down. Um, you know, but as I've, I've said before in the podcast, this, this state of so-called, um, enlightenment, uh, that, you know, and I'm not saying I'm enlightened, (laughs) that would be bad. I'm not saying I'm enlightened, but the, the state that I aspire to is a state not of, total bliss, but a state of balance, a state of, you know, never, no matter how bad things are, never forgetting how beautiful life is. And no matter how beautiful things go for me, never forgetting how much other people are suffering so that you sort of stay in this centered place. And his third question is, what's the best advice you ever received or could ever give someone? You know, I remember some advice I got when I was about that age. Um, A friend of mine uh, who was older than me and a professor, he said, uh, try to always make decisions that open more doors than they close. And that advice has come to me over the years. And I think it's been it's been pretty important in the decisions that I've made when I, when I had to sort of choose something, that's one of the ways I thought of it. Does this open more opportunities for me or does it close opportunities down for me? And that's probably been an operative, um, consideration in a lot of the decisions that I've made. And, and again, I'm not saying I've made the best decisions. Okay. But you asked. And so that's something I've thought of, uh, And the other piece of advice that uh, I got a long time ago that I think about a lot, and this is kind of poignant because the guy who gave me this advice was a guy named Len Belzer, who was the brother of Richard Belzer, who's a pretty famous American actor and comedian. And uh, just the other night, uh, Christmas Day, actually, I was at Jake Johansson's house for a dinner party. And, uh, and Richard Belzer came up cause there were a bunch of comics there and they were talking about him. And I said, Hey, did you, did you know Richard Belzer? And he said, yeah, he's a friend of mine. I said, did you happen to ever meet his brother? Len He's like, yeah, I knew Len really well. Len was great. Len was a great guy. Really. And Len was like one of my best friends when I was in New York in the eighties, uh, working in the diamond district. Len was a friend of my boss and, 
we got to Len and I got to be really good buddies and he was sort of like an older brother to me. He recommended um, books and films to me. In fact, he recommended a book called Finite and Infinite Games, which um, which I, I'm still recommending to people. I've recommended it to listeners of this podcast. Anyway, I, I hadn't been in touch with Len for a long time. Last I heard from him, he had met the, a woman that he really loved. She was a producer on Sesame Street, and he was super happy, and I was really glad for him. And, you know, that was the last I heard from him. Anyway, um, the party, the guy was talking about how Len was such a great guy. And I said, well, you know, he's still alive as far as I know. And the guy said, oh, no, no, sorry, you didn't hear. Yeah, so Len's wife died and he never recovered from that. And um, a couple of years after her death, he jumped from the roof of his apartment building and died. So just heard that a couple nights ago. Um, but one of the best pieces of advice that I was ever given came from him. I was, we were sitting in a bar. <laughs> I remember the bar. It was in Hell's Kitchen in New York. And during the course of our conversation, Debbie Harry came in and got a drink. Blondie, who was very famous in those days. And uh, I was having relationship issues. And I remember Glenn saying, I mean, Len saying, um, you can't ever, um, a relationship is not going to work if there's an essential struggle at the heart of it. And I understood what he meant. It, It was, um, he wasn't saying, you know, uh, arguments about what to have for dinner or whether to go to the mountains or the beach for vacation or do you really want to go visit, you know, your parents for Thanksgiving or do you want to go to, you know, whatever. Not that kind of shit. But relationships where there is an essential struggle. And a lot of relationships turn on an essential struggle. Like, are we monogamous or, or not? Um, like, you know, I want to look at porn and you think looking at porn makes me a pervert and I don't believe that I'm a pervert or you want to have kids. I don't want to have kids or, you know, you're, you don't like black people and I think that's fucked up. Um, or, you know, stuff like that, deep issues about the way we see the world, the way we see each other, the way we see ourselves. A relationship will never work when there's that essential struggle at the heart of it. The sex might be good because there's this energy that gets uh, injected into the relationship by the sort of almost like the lack of respect and the lack of congruence. And people will confuse good sex for a good relationship. And that's a fatal mistake. So. I guess those are the two pieces of advice that really stand out in my own head when I think about things that people have said to me personally, right? Uh, Try to always make decisions that open more doors than they close and try not to get stuck in relationships with an essential struggle at the heart. As far as things I've read, um, the thing that keeps coming back to me is a quote from St. Augustine, uh, at least attributed to him. Someone was asking him for advice, and his response was, love and do as you please. <laughs>